You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. And today on the show, I have an amazing conversation for you guys with Dr. Ed Adams. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to ask a favor of everyone listening. It would really help us out if whatever podcast platform you are listening to this episode on, if you could leave us a five-star rating, a review, a like, a subscribe, what have you, and please share with your friends. Now, let's get into this episode. So today, like I said, we have Dr. Ed Adams. Now, there are a conventional set of rules for being a man, and Dr. Ed Adams says these are outdated and unhealthy. He says this set of rules traps men in an emotional straitjacket and deadens their souls. So we talked to Dr. Ed Adams about his book, Reinventing Masculinity, and we've dived in to why confined masculinity is one of the biggest problems facing men today. Now, this is a very original topic, and that is why I wanted to speak to Dr. Adams, and it's a conversation that not a lot of people are having, so I encourage everybody who listens to this to be the person in their friendship group or relationships to start the conversation. It's up to you guys to be the first person to start the conversation, and I think that is the big call to action today. So, let's get into the episode with Dr. Ed Adams. Welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you preface this book. I have the quote in front of me here. It says, to those who understand the power of compassion and to those open to learn and to the countless lives that have been harmed or destroyed wherever compassion is ignored. How can a life be destroyed in this way? And what do you mean by that preface? Well, you know, when you're writing, uh, writing something like that, you have... Uh, an infinite number of directions one can go. And having already written most of the copy of the book, uh, I started to feel um, a need to uh, thank those who um, are acting with great compassion, as we can see in COVID right now, and how first responders and people in the direct lines are sacrificing themselves to help others. But uh, then I started to think about all of the pain and suffering that has occurred, um, I guess, since recorded, pre-recorded history of those who were on the, the wrong end of those who held no uh, connection to others um, and inflicted pain. I mean, the most, maybe it's not the most recent, but um, certainly World War II um, and the, the Holocaust and uh, the millions of lives that it cost uh, is a pretty 
strong indicator of those who were on the wrong end uh, and not receiving compassion. Before we dive into some of the content, I just wonder, are there any personal reasons that you decided to write this book? Well, Lewis, I've been, I've been, yes, uh, I've been working, um, I've been working with men uh, almost exclusively as a psychologist for many years, and I have seen profound compassion come out of men. Um, and uh, my own father uh, was a compassionate man, although he was a very traditional kind of man. He uh, served in World War II. Uh, he was on Guadalcanal, and I feel like uh, he may have, but I never left that island, um, although I've never been there. Um, the suffering that he went through um, and uh, the impact, uh, particularly in uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, impacted my life directly. And I think sometimes we learn through our own pain and suffering the value of compassion towards others. Now, I'm not complaining. I've led a, a, a good life. Uh, but I think that that sensitivity to, towards others is why I became a psychologist in fact, I spent my first two years in high school in the Catholic seminary. So something is stirring inside of me that wanted to be of service. A stat that, that jumped out to me in the book um, is 60% of men surveyed said society puts pressure on men to behave in a way that is unhealthy or bad. And this, this idea of confined masculinity. What is that, if you could define it to our audience, and what are some examples of it that they might recognize? Confined masculinity is um, a, a socially learned set of rules that uh, you as a man and I as a man and every man walking uh, the planet um, is taught without somebody sitting down with us saying, now let me teach you the rules of being a man. But some of those rules that we pick up are... Um, Things like uh, don't really don't be vulnerable, don't express your feelings, um, or if you do, be cautious because you are vulnerable and somebody may take advantage of that. Um, certainly, misogyny or our attitude towards women um, and um, uh, looking at women as objects and as conquests, uh, achievement, uh, um, do whatever you can to get to the top. Um, if you hurt somebody along the way, uh, that's the rule, the rules of the game. Uh, it has to do with intimacy. Um, don't express strong intimacy. Um, or if you do, do it dominantly through your sexual uh, expression. Uh, and um, be stoic. Uh, don't don't uh, complain. Don't talk about your feelings. Keep them secret. If you're in pain, um, uh, uh, grin and bear it. Um, now, it doesn't mean every man learns this the same way, uh, but it means that we're all exposed to it. And part of our adult responsibility is to throw out some of those rules that absolutely don't work and keep those that do uh, and modify the rest. So confined masculinity is being imprisoned in a sense or 
or contained within those very limiting uh, ideas of what it means to have a masculine role in the world. I think one of the biggest um, examples that stick out to me is this idea of vulnerability. Um, because I think, for me at least, it's been extremely important for me in developing friendships. Um, you know, w- even with my best male friends, my best friend who is also male, who I run this podcast with, I think our friendship really went to new heights when we started having really open and vulnerable conversations with each other. And I think that is, you know, extremely important. So that is one of the ones that, you know, these this confined masculinity rules that are probably most detrimental, in my opinion. Um, for you, what are some of the, the confined masculinity rules that you believe are most detrimental to us as men? Well... <laughs> Well, uh, certainly the one about uh, the ones about uh, the expression of feeling. Um, uh, it took me a, a couple of relationships to figure that one out. Um, that uh, not being vulnerable or being um, uh, expressive of what's going on inside. Um, and, and not necessarily just bad feelings. I mean, if we cut off the bad feelings, we often cut off the elated and strong positive feelings and, and think that we're supposed to operate somewhere in the middle. Um, so just like many other men, I found out that um, the, um, when the, the more intimate I'm willing to be, uh, typically the stronger the relationship is. Um, my wife and I, um, I feel, uh, are extremely uh, intimate in ways that are uh, in a glance, in a, in a, in a touch, in uh, a whisper in the ear, um, in a look across the room, um, in what we say to each other and whisper in each other's ears that are um, deeply personal. Um, and being unafraid to do that or to ho- even hold hands in public. Some men are, are, are very uncomfortable uh, holding hands in public, uh, walking down the street. Um, I was once hugging my wife on the street um, and a, a police officer came by and told us to stop. <laughs> Why did That's you do that? What, uh, because... Uh, because something was going on with him uh, yeah, that uh, I was not privy to. Um, uh, but uh, it was, it was, I felt, I felt bad for him. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Another um, term that crops up a lot in this book is liberating masculinity. What do you mean by that? Well, that in a, in a nutshell is breaking free of those confined ideas a liberating masculinity um, really uh, I, I sometimes describe it as a um, a tailor-made masculinity for oneself where you don't subscribe to the traditional rules um, yet you um, go through your particularly your your adult male life um, uh, in a way that feels very authentic to you and feels very real like this is this is this is why I'm here. This is my purpose. This is, I'm moving towards my fulfillment. I'm feeling happy uh, or happier, uh, or I'm feeling uh, a a deep sense of satisfaction. Uh, And so when we are 
uh, moving towards a liberating masculinity were often by trial and error, uh, letting, sorry about that, uh, letting go of, of uh, notions that simply don't work in human relationships. So in the book, let's talk about reinventing masculinity. You mentioned the five C's uh, framework. The first being curiosity, asking important questions. What do you think are the kinds of questions that we should be asking ourselves that we tend to often neglect or we are taught to neglect? Mm. Well, I I think the the curiosity or the question asking um, primarily um, starts with awareness that we're allowed to ask questions about how am I operating as a man? Is this, is this working well for me? Uh, am I getting a good response from others? Am, uh, is it deepening uh, my relationship? Relationships often uh, have to grow down uh, as well as grow up. And growing down means uh, developing deeper roots and connections and involvements and um, feeling stronger uh, in the substance and structure of a relationship. Um, and the deeper our roots go, the stronger the tree um, or the tree of life, our own personal life, can withstand uh, difficulties and storms. So the first thing about curiosity is, is, is knowing that we can ask those questions, that we don't have to blindly follow those male, silly male rules. I call them silly male rules. Um, so, and questions such as, um, is this working? Um, uh, do I need to operate automatically in this way? Um, if people are, uh, telling you that you are, um, uh, they don't know you or they want more disclosure from you, or they, they feel lonely with you, uh, believe them. Maybe, maybe they want more. It's asking the question, what, what is it they want from me? How can I learn to do that? As a, just another segue um, for you personally. What, have you noticed that there seems to be a different uh, approach or a different feeling towards masculinity maybe now than it did 10, 20, 30 years ago? Is it moving in the, in the right direction? Or ultimately, is that why you've written this book? Is, is, is it not moving in the right direction yet? Well, um, it, it certainly isn't binary, Lewis. Um, I think, I think first of all, that, that there is, there are some very good signs that um, uh, younger men are uh, more tolerant, more expressive, more nurturing, more involved in fathering, um, more involved in uh, their ability to accept uh, emotions. Um, There's a lot of evidence showing that uh, the workplace for men uh, younger men uh, needs to be more comprehensive to their life and to their uh, adaptation to their fuller life. In other words, the dedication to to, um, to the business is um, no longer, I think, are uh, going to be a sustainable model. Uh, uh, so yes, there are very healthy signs, um, and the data supports some of those uh, very healthy signs. Uh, but I always caution people not to get too optimistic because the power of those um, confined ideas 
are strong and alive. And we see them uh, sort of coming out in, in various movements. In the U.S., we see that with, uh, um, uh, with the, well, the, 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 the rise of, of, of Nazi movements, uh, the rise of, of um, uh, uh, anti-racial groups. Um, uh, and um, I, I don't think the U.S. is alone in that um, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, something is going on there that um, is uh, rooted in confined uh, masculinity ideas. Uh, the second C you mentioned in this framework is courage. Now, on the surface, if you look at that word as a man, you think it means um, be brave, suck it up, get on with it, push through it. But when we dig deeper, what do you mean by courage and what kind of courage should we be looking to harness? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Uh, and, and some of those examples you gave are uh, very workable. Um, and uh, you know we we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. Um, it takes a lot of courage, for example, for a man to wake up in the morning, to go to a job to support his family, um, and doing a job he may not really find a lot of satisfaction to do. Um, and so uh, the courage that I see from men has ranged from a daily sacrifice of, of their um, best hours of their day in order to make sure their uh, uh, kids are um, more fully supported educationally than they've ever been or have, have uh, uh, food and clothing and so on. So when I watch men, I see, I see a great deal of courage all over the place. Um, uh, certainly, um, uh, men who are uh, in high-risk jobs um, display a certain kind of physical courage. What I'm talking about here has a lot to do with emotional courage. Uh, emotional courage, the emotional courage to, um, to uh, see your son, say, uh, fall down uh, during a, your, your eight-year-old son fall down while he's playing soccer and he starts to tear up. And instead of saying to him, uh, uh, grin and bear it or ignore it, um, just say, saying something like, uh, oh, that must hurt, but the hurt's going to go away. And, um, um, uh, and, and something that comforts, something that, that uh, doesn't tell him that his actual feeling at that moment is wrong. That uh, takes courage to step out of that traditional confined role to uh, be expressive and to uh, react to people. Uh, in ways that uh, one typically does not. So it's out of a comfort zone that uh, a lot of the courage comes in. Does that make uh, yeah, is that yeah. clear? While we're, on that, while we're on that subject, just another segue. What role do you think that um, this, you know, taught idea of masculinity is playing in the relationships that people have with their children, that people have with their families? Is, is, it, is it causing a bit of a divide that necessarily doesn't need to be there? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, confined masculinity, by definition, 
um, is uh, is restrictive. So um, if um, uh, I, I haven't met a man yet that has said to me, uh, my father told me too many times that he loved me. No one's ever walked in my office with that as a complaint or an issue, you know. But um, a lot of men have said, gee, I know my dad loved me, but I never heard it. Or he certainly acted in loving ways, but um, uh, we never hugged. We were very uncomfortable touching until perhaps late in life when, when um, uh, uh, the father's death is approaching. Um, so that, uh, yes, it interferes because it, it's unfulfilled. It's, it's, it's not tying together all of the different um, uh, uh, stitches with each other to create a tight fit where the behavior and the words and the actions and the language and the, um, the nonverbals and the verbals are conveying um, the kind of warmth and comfort and tenderness that we often need. Uh, it's not all we need, but um, uh, uh, when those are missing, we feel it. We hurt. Yeah, that reminds me. I was talking to John Asaraf, who um, one of the authors of The Secret. He's into in, a neuroscientist. And he was talking about the relationship he had with his father and that his father was very distant, would often beat him, um, would, would never show any compassion. And when he eventually asked his father later in life, why, why did you do this? He said, well, that's what my father's father did. And that's what my father's father's father did. And John was telling me that it got to this point where he thought, I have to be the one to break the cycle. I've got to be the one to step up. And so is that, yeah, is that what we mean by courage? Somewhere down that line, if we're talking about parenting, someone's got to have the courage to go, okay, let me look at this from another angle. Uh, bingo. You, you, you win what's behind curtain number three with that answer. <laughs> you, uh, that's, that's exactly a good, a great example of, of the kind of courage that the emotional courage that we're talking about. Mm. Um, and uh, these kinds of things are uh, uh, generation, uh, generationally transmitted. Um, and, and that's in that example, you could see great grandfather, uh, grandfather, father, and, and at some point the courage to say, well, that doesn't, that didn't help me certainly didn't help my dad. And I don't think my dad was helped by it. So is there a better way? Now we're back to curiosity. So, um, uh, because these, these are, are, are very intertwined and looping. Um, and a better way tends to be a more compassionate, connected, uh, involved, um, non-confined masculinity way. Next C, uh, a word we've mentioned numerous times already, compassion. And so I Googled the word compassion and Google said um, it is sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Now, for me, developing compassion has to start within, I guess, you've got to develop self-compassion. So what are the tools, what are the ways we can start to develop this self-compassion? Mm. Um, self-compassion. You know, when I do workshops with men and I ask, um, how many of you feel you're compassionate? Uh, 
Most men will raise their hand. If I ask them, how many of you feel self-compassionate? I get looks like, I don't even know what you're talking about, let alone raising of a hand. Um, in the men's group center that um, uh, Men Mentoring Men uh, that I started many years ago, there's a sign that says, I never beat myself up gently. And um, self-compassion is recognizing one's own suffering. And by suffering, uh, I'm talking about, it could be discomfort. It could be um, a recurring um, anxiety about something in your life. It could be something that feels like you want to avoid. It could feel hurt, like an emotional hurt. Um, certainly could be a physical hurt as well. Men, data shows men don't take care of themselves physically very well, uh, certainly not as well as women do. So self-compassion is attached to self-awareness. And when you're self-aware enough to know that you're hurting, then you can recognize that being self-compassionate is doing something to alleviate or prevent that suffering from happening. It's like being your own best friend in some, uh, in some kind of way. Um, it's, it's not self-pity, uh, it, nor is it, um, uh, nor is it, it uh, non-courageous. It takes courage to see that you're suffering, to admit to it. You know why? Because it shows vulnerability again. Yeah. When you, when you say that, um, with compassion with others, you say in the book that it's, it doesn't just stop at empathy. It requires action. What kind of action do you mean? That's a, a, another good question. I was asked that after a workshop once and, and like, what's the difference between empathy and compassion? And I use the example that, uh, Lewis, if you said to me, you broke your leg Mm -hmm. and I said, Oh, I did once too, that must really hurt. And uh, it's really inconvenient. And, um, you know, it'll cramp your lifestyle for quite a while. And, uh, and I get it. Well, I'm being empathic. But if I say to you, all of those things that, wow, that must, uh, that must have really hurt. And it's extremely inconvenient. In fact, you're going to have to have many visits to the doctor and you're not able to drive. So I'll drive you to the doctor whenever you need somebody to do that. That's an act, and that's an act of compassion. So it's taking the empathy to a step of action that either prevents or eliminates uh, the suffering that is going on. Um, A simple thing like walking down the street and somebody says, "Do do you have any spare change? and you you reach in your pocket and you give them some change. That's an action. That's an act of compassion. The fourth one you mentioned is connection. And I think it can be extremely liberating and free when you build these bonds um, with people. And, you know, you can start to do things that you otherwise may not have been able to do on your own. What does connection look like in practice in the way that you're referring to it in the book? Mm -hmm. The way we typically look at connection, Lewis, is, uh, and rightfully so, is an involvement with um, those around us, our immediate family, uh, 
our extended family and our friendships. Um, and uh, those are important connections that by themselves often need to be deepened or, um, or um, explored in a way that uh, increases the amount of, of information to intimacy that we have inside of that. Um, so uh, I, I, I want that to, uh, I want to be sure that that, that part of connection uh, is a vital part of our lives. Um, when we're talking about connection, we're, we're talking about expanding the, the ring so that we begin to understand that um, uh, we're all, in a poetic way, we're all made of stardust. We're all the same. We may have different cultural styles. We may have different skin colors. We may have different ideas about things. But, you know, you, you cut your, your finger, you're go, we're all going to bleed. And so it's a recognition that connection is something beyond kinship. It's something beyond tribal. Um, it includes that, but it goes beyond that. And in another way, connection is relearning the vitalness of our connection with our natural environment. Uh, we're killing it. That is not connection. We don't, you know, when you're deeply connected with something, you don't kill it. When, and we're killing our natural environment, which means uh, we're committing a, um, a small a form of suicide to the human race and to all living creatures. So uh, when we talk about connection, we're talking about a mindset, a mindset that goes beyond that which is only uh, me-oriented, um, uh, but becomes me and we-oriented. And that includes other people as well as the natural earth and all living creatures. So when we start to look for more connection in people anyway, um, should we be should we ask ourselves any questions when we're looking to for new connections in people? Are there any certain traits we should, you think we should personally look for in people we're going to bring into our close circle? Are there any traits that you personally try to avoid when you're bringing people into your close circle? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I'll talk personally. Um, uh, I don't know if there's anyone in my close circle that um, espouses um, disconnection and hate um, that um, is so uh, rigid in his or her ideas about um, um, uh, uh, life is all about them. Um, uh, that, that takes me down. Uh, so why would I be around somebody who is that self-absorbed? Um, uh, I think that the idea of uh, for me, people who take care of themselves, take care of those they love, and have a broader perspective of connection, both to other people uh, and to the natural environment, uh, simply makes me feel stronger, makes me feel more, um, makes me feel more alive and more protective of those things, because I'm being supported by, uh, by my peers. Um, so I think I th I think the, the the questions that one asks about uh, who do I include in that larger circle 
starts first with the recognition that frankly, we're all in that circle. Um, uh, and, uh, but there are some folks in that circle that want to diminish the quality of life for themselves and others, and those that want to enhance it. Um, and uh, I think the more you and I support people around us to enhance the quality of life, then, uh, and we teach it to our children, then it becomes exponential. Uh, we're, we're now building a community of people who do that. And, um, uh, you know, I have a certain amount of, of uh, maybe anger is too strong of a word, but maybe disgust isn't, um, at the silence men have of these confined rules that we talk about. Um, the, the, the lack of speaking up in uh, uh, personal and public ways to say, no, that's, uh, I'm, I'm not going to operate that way. When, uh, uh, when we have our uh, men mentoring men meetings and men learn that they could be in the company of other men in a safe environment and not be shamed, then over time they learn that they can express themselves in ways that um, uh, begin to change the way they see the world, mm. the way they love other people, the way they connect with other people. Um, so uh, the, the things we espouse in the book are not based on uh, a uh, sort of a tree-hugging theory of life. Uh, it's based on the fact that uh, when men are given permission to really, uh, in a sense, let their humanity rip, they are, they grow and they love more deeply and they are more connected to one another. They are more uh, involved with their families and with their wives and they make choices about work that are more satisfying. Um, and and uh, for me personally, uh, nothing could be more gratifying than watching that happen. Mm. It's interesting because I recently spoke to uh, an ancient historian and we were talking about um, things like compassion and love. And he was giving me these stories and these examples of um, his archaeology and when he's visited uh, historical caves. And they found that, you know, they found these stories of like groups of Neanderthals from thousands of years ago, men showing compassion by, um, they found these burial sites for, um, you know, Neanderthals that, had like one arm, one leg were blind. So they were pretty much a drain on resources to the group and they were pretty much useless to, you know, their efforts to survive. Yet they treated these people with, with such love and compassion. And these were men. So that tells me that it is in my, it was in your human nature to be compassionate. Yes. But somewhere along the line in history, this started going wrong. What changed? Well, in our, our foreword, who is written by Dr. Paul Gilbert, who lives somewhere near you uh, in, in the UK, um, uh, is one of the leading uh, uh, his, um, researchers in the area of, of compassion. Mm -hmm. And in the foreword, he does mention exactly what you just talked about. And, but he suggests that, that what really changed um, uh, the, that 
that built-in instinct to be compassionate uh, wasn't um, was indeed what we refer to as civilization. Uh, when we became um, farmers instead of hunter-gatherers, that uh, we then became territorial. We then became possessive. We then divided uh, the resources. Uh, we then um, uh, created roles for women and roles for men. Uh, because um, men were more able, say, to till a field and, uh, and than a woman. And they became, we started to adapt to this uh, uh, agricultural uh, way of life. And uh, then I wanted your land, and you wanted my land, and uh, the rest is history. Um, and so, uh, in a paradoxical way, it was the beginning of what we refer to as civilization that may have uh, put a major dent into our ability to be compassionate. Mm. Yeah. The fifth and final C you mentioned in this framework is commitment. Now, like any addiction, like any bad habit, it is, I, I'm guessing, very, very easy to relapse back into this mold of confined masculinity. Even if you know, you've read a book like yours or you've listened to a conversation like this and you're trying to actively change that, it's very easy to slip back. That could be through you know, your, your social group. It could be um, a toxic partner. You can quite easily slip back into that mold. In what ways can we be sure to keep ourselves accountable and prevent ourselves slipping back into that toxic mold? That's a good question. You know, uh, uh, and one of the answers, though, is is not to to be self compassionate when you do slip back, mm. because um, it is um, going to happen. But the difference is awareness. Yeah. Oh, look! I, I, you know, I acted like a jerk right there. You know, it's like um, I, I I'm not going to do that again. Or why did I say that? Or or that that was unfriendly, or I, I didn't pay attention to that person's needs. Um, and so you become aware of it, that, um, and that awareness then gradually begins to um, allow the commitment part to mature. Hmm. But there's also a heart commitment. It's like, um, it's, 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 it's uh, akin to just saying, as I could say to you right now, uh, I, I want to become a better man than I am. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it means first I'm committed to that, but uh, if I uh, want to be a better man than I am, I'm making a, committing, a commitment statement, and that means that I have to then define what that means. And for me, that would be um, uh, more helpful, more available, um, uh, less self-centered, um, more um, curious uh, about other people. Um, in my profession as a psychologist, to stay on top of the literature and um, and and the techniques that uh, that work with people, um, uh, to be able to have boundaries, uh, to be able to um, uh, live a life that is of service. Uh, so, uh, those are the things that, um, uh, that I would commit to that in turn, 
I feel, and for me personally, make me a better person, a better man, and then uh, roll back into, um, I have to keep asking questions and be curious. I have to have the courage to confront, et cetera, et cetera. When I was going through the book, um, this song kept coming to my head. It's a song, or I know it as a song, through a very famous Welsh singer. Where I'm from Wales. The singer is called Tom Jones, very famous singer. And the song is, he keeps asking a question. He keeps saying, what is the soul of a man? And that begs the question, what is the soul of a man? And how do we embrace it? Well, I wrote a whole chapter on that. Um, and uh, there are, frankly, many ways one can interpret that. And as I stated in the book, uh, I'm, I'm looking at that from a non-religious perspective. And, um, but I'm looking at the soul of a man as the ability to um, really be deeply and intimately involved in life. Um, so that you see a lot of men will say, um, and a lot of women, I mean, this is kind of a human thing to do, but, um, uh, here's the good things that happened to me and here's the bad things that happened to me. So, uh, we, uh, have this illusion that if we know enough, do enough, um, uh, say enough, learn enough, uh, we could, we could make only good things happen and we could eliminate what we refer to as the bad things. Well, those are all judgments. That's just life. And so when, the, when you're deeply in the soul, what you're, what you're doing is you're looking at, um, you're trying to find a way to stay uh, deeply centered no matter what life brings. Uh, the, the, the Buddhists refer to equanimity. And equanimity is that ability to stay centered uh, despite what life presents. Um, the soul of a man is, is um, uh, holding hands with a dying parent. Uh, the soul of a man is exhibited when um, uh, he walks into a room and his children are sleeping and he sneaks over and kisses them on the forehead. Um, the soul of a man is there when he apologizes to his wife for having um, said something or done something <clears throat> that hurt her feelings. Uh, the soul of a man is present when he could say to another man, I love you. Uh, the soul of a man is <clears throat> present when he is able to, um, uh, to create, to be involved in, uh, in the wonders of life. Um, to take a walk and actually see what's around you instead of just walk, um, uh, to, uh, to absorb. It's kind of an absorption of life. Um, and it's an, an absorption that isn't determined by this is good or this is bad. Um, in New Jersey here, and it's, um, it's a beautiful time of year in the fall, it would be like if I took a walk um, down a path and said, uh, this orange leaf is ugly, this red leaf is beautiful. Um, I'm making a judgment. Um, it, it, it's just orange, one's orange and one's red. 
to be soulful is to look at the beauty of both and the wonder of both and the merit, frankly, the miracle of both, of, of both. Someone asked me the other day, do you believe in miracles? And the question startled me. And I said, uh, where isn't there a miracle? I mean, I, you know, if you look at it that way, it's like, like everything, our, our presence, you and I being able to talk to each other like this. Um, it, the, the, it's infinite. Beautiful, beautiful. Look, we've talked a lot today about your book, Reinventing Masculinity, The Liberating Power of Compassion and Connection. What I know our audience would love to hear from you. Are there any books that you've read throughout your life that have had a big, big impact on you that you could recommend they check out as well? Hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a tall question. Not because I haven't read a lot of books that have been influential, uh, but uh, it's trying to remember them. That's going to be yeah. the problem. <laughs> um, certainly I've been influenced by uh, the books of Paul Gilbert. Um, I would highly recommend <clears throat> Paul's books. Uh, his most recent one is called Living Like Crazy. And he's not talking about letting it rip. He's really understanding the human mind as still evolving. And uh, I mean, what other living creature can create um, a, a stockpile of bombs that can destroy everything on the planet? That's it's crazy. We do crazy things to each other. So he tries to explain that while at the same time explaining the necessity and the uh, sort of built-in equipment we have to counter that, which focuses on compassion. Um, uh, I have been heavily influenced by um, a psychologist by the name of James Hillman. Hillman passed away a number of years ago, but he's considered the father of uh, American archetypal psychology. He was a Jungian, and, uh, but he talked about um, the uh, dimensionality, as I do in the book, of, of a man, um, that we are, uh, we are multitudes, uh, as the poem goes, um, and uh, that uh, Gil uh, or Hillman uh, really um, talks about the necessity to uh, be inside our imaginations. Our, our imagination of the world and to stop this silly binary thinking, good, bad, right, wrong, heaven, hell. Um, and, uh, and because we miss all of life in between, um, um, which is where all of life typically is. Um, and uh, I have, uh, uh, I have uh, uh, a, a prior book to this one that I wrote, um, that, uh, and illustrated, um, I'm also a professional artist, which we're not talking about today, but that, that book is called, um, uh, becoming a happier man. I'll, I'll hold it up so you can see it. Uh, uh, a man's guide to living a full and meaningful life. And in this book, it's very small copy, um, are, uh, both things that I've learned, um, uh, for example, um, this one is about deep friendships, wow. the things I've learned from men over the years with men mentoring men, that when men are happier, they report uh, that these things exist in their lives. Um, and, and in this 
random page I picked up, it says, develop deep friendships, share things of importance, what you feel, what you believe, what you experience, and what you need from each other. And then the illustrations are, are done to, uh, are, to uh, give a different avenue of absorbing the words. Um, I have, um, between my wife and I, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, my wife's book, frankly, has been very influential because we talk that through. It's in its fifth printing. It, it's, um, uh, it's a book that describes, um, it's called The Art of the Question. Okay. And um, uh, it's uh, published by Barrett Kohler. And uh, she talks about the difference between um, uh, learner and judger. Mm. So, um, uh, for example, um, questions are very interesting. Um, what we're doing right now or what we're wearing right now really are answers. It's okay. like what's comfortable uh, uh, how do I want to present myself to the public? Um, um, what's clean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do I look good in? And so we have implied questions where our actions really can be uh, um, reverse engineered to the questions that we were asking. Mm. And contrast that with judgment, which is um, could be personal, like why did this always happen to me? Or why, why can't things be better? Um, or they could be more cultural, like, uh, why does everything uh, have to be so angry? Um, and uh, why does so-and-so have to be president? And, um, uh, but learner questions uh, um, teach us to wonder. They, they teach us to be in a mindset, like, what can I learn from this? I made a mistake, but what can I learn? What's possible? What did this, what opportunities does this create? Um, so those, those are a few books that I would recommend. Fascinating. I, I, I do really want to check out um, your previous work and your wife's work. So I'll, I'll definitely check those out uh, when I get a chance. My yeah. penultimate question to you. So if we picture a scenario now in which every person on the planet is tuned into the same frequency, and you were given the opportunity to, to broadcast one short message or one lesson um, that you've learned if you distill your experiences and research in life down, one thing you'd love every person in the world to hear, what would your message to the world be? Whoa. Um, simply put, um, care for, let's care for each other. Hmm. And let's care for the natural world. Love it. Love it. My last question to you. Um, so I'll give you an example. For me, what makes my life worth living every day is recording conversations like these and putting them out there and knowing that, you know, even if one person listens and it impacts their life, then that means I can go to sleep at night happy. So for you, uh, Dr. Adams, what makes a life worth living? Um, uh, my uh, personal philosophy um, is to um, uh, to do three things. Well, it, it includes more things. Um, uh, to do good, to have fun, and to make money. If I make money, I could do more good. I could have more fun. 
it loops it loops around it isn't about the money itself it's 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 the resources that it provides um it's the uh it's the um it's the ability to impact a, a wider um connection that i was talking about earlier um on a very personal level um you know i i i have spent countless hours listening to a lot of suffering uh, as a psychologist. Um, and um, I have spent also many hours uh, laughing with people, um, being, um, seeing the absurdities of life. Um, and I've had the, um, the joys of seeing people uh, uh, really change in a way that uh, allowed them to grow up and down and to feel more satisfied about life. Uh, one of my patients said to me the other day, I got the audio portion of your book and I'm listening to it in my car. Uh, and uh, he said, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. He said, but it feels like you're talking to me. Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm a voice in his head from our therapy, but also uh, uh, th through the book. And, and so it's, 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 it's touching his life. I guess that's 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 what I'm talking about is is positively touching other people's lives. So for everyone listening now who may want to check out the book and buy it and read it themselves, where can they find out more about it? Where can they purchase it? And where can they find out more about you and your work? Okay. Uh, the the website for the book is uh, reinventingmasculinity.com. Uh, on that website, we have some stories. We have uh, some additional um, uh, information. We have links to menmentoringmen.org, which is a nonprofit organization uh, of um, a 30-year-old men's group. Um, we have uh, the ability to um, purchase the book on there by uh, clicking on to Amazon, and uh, that's where one can order the book or through your local bookstore, um, uh, which uh, and and also like Barnes and Nobles, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and uh, you could also go to um, uh, dredadams.net. That's D R E D A D A M S um, uh, dot net. As one of my patients pointed out, it actually spells dreadadams.net. <laughs> so it's an easier way to remember it. And hopefully there's no dread to it, except for the initial phone call people typically make. Then they're dreading that. Um, and um, uh, the, uh, uh, the website, uh, reinventingmasculinity.com, uh, I think is uh, perhaps the most informative one that um, uh, people can connect with. Perfect. So the call to action for this episode being reinventingmasculinity.com. Uh, Dr. Ed Adams, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's put a real smile on my face. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it too. I did, Lewis, very much. You asked some great questions and... Um, uh, and I can tell you're a good man. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Freedom Pact podcast. We'll see you again on Friday. And guys, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the Freedom Pact podcast on YouTube. That's youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact, where all of these conversations are available in video format. And one other thing, if you haven't yet, please consider subscribing to our Healthy, Wealthy and Wise newsletter which is available at freedompact.co.uk forward slash newsletter. We'll see you again on Friday. Thank you so much, our Freedom Pact family.